Welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bob Thune, and I am here almost alone today. Uh, Bethany's on vacation. Chris is on vacation. Dusty is out today. I've got a special guest, Audrey Conrad, on the podcast with me. Hey, Audrey. Hello. And so I'll tell you more about her in a minute. Um, Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today, we're talking about woke therapy. Um, We're going to tackle an article from the Free Press um, that has an interesting title that I'm going to read in a minute, and it um, raises an interesting problem. But before I get to the article and before I read the title, um, I asked Audrey to come on the podcast because this article, as I read it, mapped onto um, some things I know that she has faced over the past few years in her career journey. And so Audrey wanted to just invite you to um, kind of be our, uh, our, our live guest talking about the real ways that this is playing out um, in the world around us. And so the conversation we're going to have has to do with a shift that's taking place in some schools of therapy and counseling, and um, probably not in people that are currently practicing, but more in people who are currently being trained. And I'll, um, I'll read from the article, the, the author calls it an ideological shift that's kind of happening in how therapy is being approached um, at the academic level. But before we get to that, Audrey, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so you've um, raised some children and then decided, you know what, I want to go to school and be a counselor. Tell us about that journey. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I uh, homeschooled my kiddo, three kiddos for 17 years. And as we uh, launched each one of them, it became apparent that I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So in considering what does the next stage of life look like, um, I realized I was already mentoring women and needed just some more skills in order to be able to do that well. And we had navigated some mental health issues with our family um, and realized that is an area that Christians can really use a presence and um, people walking in it, it through mental health crises don't always have a good support network. And so realized I would really love to be helpful in that area and felt a calling. So stepped into that, um, actually finished up my bachelor's degree first and then stepped into um, applying for master's uh, degrees and decided to go through a marriage and family therapy program. Um, and that's how I started my journey. So what I experienced about your journey, Audrey, as I sort of walked uh, alongside you in gospel community, mapped right onto this article um, that the Free Press put out. Uh, the author is Lisa Davis. And um, the title is How Therapists Became Social Justice Warriors. And what Lisa Davis is tracking is what she calls an ideological shift in the world of therapy that she says is basically just in the last few years. Um, And the essential, uh, I want to, I'll include this article in the show notes so that listeners, if you want to, you can go read it. Um, But essentially here's, it's a very thorough article and she talks to a bunch of therapists, a bunch of people studying therapy, a bunch of professors, and all of them sort of identify the same thing. And here's the language that Lisa Davis puts on it. Uh, The bias and framework of critical social justice, that's what she calls it, is beginning to transform how people think about therapy and how therapists are trained. Let me read a paragraph from the article. According 
to critical social justice, one's identity categories are paramount to the therapeutic process. Neutrality and objectivity, once the cornerstones of the practice, are now tools of oppression and white supremacy. The major professional organizations for the therapeutic fields have in recent years produced scholarship, mission statements, position papers, and curriculums reflecting this newfound dogma, one that leads therapists to refashion themselves into social activists. She goes on to quote uh, statements from the American Counseling Association, the American School Counselor Association, the American Psychological Association, sort of all of them saying, hey, one of the things we want to be committed to is anti-racism and anti-oppression and all these kinds of things. And most of these statements are just from the past few years. At the beginning of the article, she notes that the therapy field did need some correction because it has in the past, if you've studied Freud or any of the early psychotherapists, there was definitely some imbalance in this field. And so in the 80s, this principle of cultural competency came into focus, which is just basically what we all have learned about being aware of our own biases and the ways that we think that someone else might not think. And as I um, sent, the, I, I sent this article to you, Audrey, and said, hey, how did you experience this? And you had a really interesting sort of expression of like, yeah, cultural competency was just sort of basic good therapy practice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Describe sort of how you sort of learned that early on in your program. Absolutely. You know, cultural comp competency was um, framed as cultural humility. So really starting out with learning your own culture, um, what made you who you are, what your values are, what your, what your celebrations, your foods, your um, core beliefs um, and as you begin to know your own culture, then you can better appreciate other people's culture. As a therapist, then the goal is to be able to see people in their own context, not just uh, look at them through the, my own lens, but see them through um, and try to understand their experience through the lens that they might be looking or the way they might be experiencing life. So cultural humility was, um, it seemed to be like, oh yeah, I can, that makes sense. Yes, that seems like loving another human being the way um, they, they need to be loved and not just the way I want to be treated. And so you were practicing or studying as a you know, white Christian female. And so you worked with a lot of clients who were, had different worldviews and had different cultural backgrounds. And so you would sort of understand, all right, where's this person coming from? How did you, how did you learn to do that in a therapy setting? Absolutely. So when we first were starting out, the vocabulary of identities was already a part of the program. And so we would learn our, we had to learn our identities and how we would identify ourselves. Um, like you said, yes, I am a, I'm a white cisgender heterosexual female. Um, and I may or may not share that I was uh, a married woman of faith. Uh, that would be a uh, disclosure that might be good for my client, or I might determine that sharing that I'm a person of faith might not be helpful in that therapeutic relationship. So um, we could disclose, our, we would disclose our identities, but then we were instructed to ask our clients what their identities were. And that's just where this started to become a little bit tricky. You said most of them didn't know what to do with that question. Yes, yes. Uh, so... My, with my co-therapist in the room, us, uh, both of us white um, European females um, asking an Asian couple what they thought of um, sitting across from us or a Latina mother and her t daughter 
what they thought sitting across from us both. Um, Seth had no idea what to do with that question. They were, um, they just were flustered and moved on. And uh, it, it just felt like the most awkward moment. Um, and as we're trying to start a therapeutic relationship, <laughs> we're trying to build trust and which is supposed to be the most important part. Um, and here we are fumbling about this whole concept of identity. So. so let's tell where this story is headed so that we can come back and understand the the problems in, that the article is trying to raise. So where this ended with you, Audrey, was basically with the program essentially saying to you, hey, because you're a Christian, I just don't think we can go forward, essentially. Uh, yes. Uh, one of my professors, of a uh, professor of diversity and inclusion, uh, pulled me aside in a conversation to say that, yes, because I am a person of faith, that that raises inherent concerns of my ability to not discriminate against LGBTQ and people of color um, who I would be treating. And this is despite the fact that you had worked with a lot of these people and they all had very right. nice things to say about Yes, you. yes. I, I said, you know what, You would you like to look at my tape of trans my working with a transgender client or a bisexual client and uh and my professor was not interested in that um it was not about my own specific work but because i'm a person of faith i represented these institutions of power and religion um we didn't even determine what my faith was in the conversation um so i thought that was curious but just being a person of faith uh felt threatening to um this professor and uh, caused her to say as a gatekeeper for this uh, field that uh, she did not feel that she could sign off on on my ability to not discriminate. So, yeah. So this created both a professional and kind of a personal crisis for you because this is something you were very set on going into. This was going to be your field. Yes, and you yes. sort of had to say, what do I do now? Right. Yes. Thankfully, that's how you ended up here, and I'm glad you're here. But. <laughs> right. Yes. So I. Yes. Currently, um, I'm. I'm blessed to have the position to to serve here uh, with um, Dusty on the care and counseling team, uh, doing biblical counseling. But at the time, um, I felt that a, being a licensed uh, mental health practitioner was the way I could serve people most effectively. Um, and so, yeah, it was very disorienting to be a, at a position where I had to. Um, really come before the Lord and what is, what is my conscience calling me to do in, in that situation? I, uh, when you do clinical work, you work underneath the supervision of another licensed professional, and we would be doing clinical work underneath that professor. And, um, that professor was already requiring that we celebrate, uh, gender transitions um, or gender identity changes. And for me, uh, as a, as a Christian, I know I cannot, I can't celebrate that. Um, for me, I was able to say as my clients are not believers, I don't expect them to behave like my, in the same way that I would act as a Christian. So I would use their pronouns for them as a way, as a bridge to be able to, um, say, hey, I love you for who you are. I see you as a person made in the image of God. But uh, I can't celebrate and make that the most important thing and make your gender identity the method through which you're going to become healthy. So uh, because I couldn't do that, then I knew that I would need to make a, 
make a transition out of the program. So I finished with a non-clinical degree. Yeah. Uh, that the thing you're describing is what this article raises, which is that both for clients and for therapists, the shift in the discipline is from a focus on the individual and how do we help the individual to a way of seeing that sees people as part of identity groups. And that, it, that sort of brings that, you know, it's the, 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 the article uses the language of woke therapy, which is, you know, of course, a shorthand way of talking about it. But the idea is that um, we are all some, some constellation of identity groups, you know, so you, you know, the, even the language you're using of I'm a white cisgender, mm-hmm. you know, female, the, and those are your, ident- your overlapping identity groups. And then you might be sitting with a client who has these identity groups. And the point of this article is that um, therapy is increasingly, or the training of therapists is increasingly moving in that direction. And the article raises that that actually brings some vulnerabilities for how we can help the client and for a therapist like you, who's like, oh, you're actually really good working with clients, but because you don't mm-hmm. fit, the, because you can't celebrate the identities or we feel like the identity groups you're a part of don't fit with what we want to be able to celebrate, mm-hmm. that means you shouldn't go forward mm-hmm. in the program. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit, Audrey, about how, do, how does that, seeing people as groups, how as part of a, a oppressed or oppressor group, mm-hmm. how did you see that playing out in the program and how do you see that affecting just the discipline of counseling? How does it make it difficult to do the work? Absolutely. I think uh, one thing you're, you're talking about in those um, groups is the, uh, the balance of power and uh, with critical theory and woke therapy, so to speak, that, um, that balance of power is a huge part. So those who have more power are in the center. Those who have less power are out on the margins. Um, those who have less power on the margins are also considered to be oppressed. And so uh, in this new ideology, health is considered to be when those who are at the center recognize their power and may experience shame in that process. And they, they work through their shame and then they're able to um, decentralize themselves. So I'm, I'm using big words, but what the essence is, is to take what seems normal to us uh, or what normal and what is, seems normal to our culture right now um, and make that move it to the margins, make that see, make that less normal. That sounds really obscure, but take what is on the margins. So things like, um, different gender identities and move those to the center and make those normal. So the, the, the dealing with a client in, in a therapy session in terms of, Oh, you're a member of this group and I'm a member of this group. How does that complicate the ability just to treat them as a human being? How do you, how do you see that this may be making it difficult to relate to them just as a person instead of as a possessor of an identity? Right. So those, uh, those social statuses that have power, um, if we're, if a person comes in and we see them just because just through that lens, you're a, you're a white male. So I treat you like a person with privilege. Um, I treat you like somebody who has agency, regardless of what your experience is, then I can really miss the problem that you're coming in with. Um, I think I've shared with you the, uh, example of a, a white kid who was perhaps a missionary or a military child goes with his parents to live in a foreign country is therefore 
marginalized in the sense that they do not have the language, don't have the same skin color, don't have the same cultural values as the majority culture that they're growing up in. Then they return to the United States. They don't really feel like they fit in at the United States now, too, because they, even though maybe they're white, they don't have um, the same cultural experiences. They're not, they're not feeling that sense of agency that a person of privilege is supposed to have. And so if they come in to be seen, um, if I say like, oh, you know, you are a white male, therefore you fit into these categories, therefore you have power and privilege, um, then I deny their experience that actually, no, they didn't. And they need help learning how to have a voice. They need help learning how to be able to make decisions, learning how that they do fit in, they have value and they have worth, even though they don't feel like they do. Um, so I can, if I start from that position of your social status is the defining your problem, then I miss you and I miss your experience. Um, when we miss the individual, we miss their experience, then we, we can't help them move to that place of health again. Um, we, as a therapist, have decided what's healthy rather than um, the client coming in and us finding out where they are to begin with and helping them move to their goals. So it ceases to be client-centered therapy and becomes this um, promotion of this ideology. And do you think that is that a self-conscious move among those who hold this? In other words, do they see themselves as like, yeah, we don't want to be doing client-centered therapy? Or would they say, no, this is a way of being client-centered? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I would have to say from my experience, there are those who younger students going through the program with me who transitioned into a master's program directly from their bachelor's. This language was very already easily known to them. Uh, they, they knew how to um, assimilate to this theory and apply this theory with ease. For, for me, who's been in a different world and came back to academia, um, came back into this, it was very jolting. So I would say, uh, is that client-centered? Those who've already been in academia would say, yes, this is client-centered. Of course, this is just an extension of what we already do. Um, for me, I would say, whoa, that's, that's not client-centered. Client-centered, I would, again, start with my client. Where are you? What is your problem? What are your experiences? I would talk about their identities as they presented them um, and how they see their identities impacting their experiences rather than projecting my own views of this ideology, you know, because you're, um, again, since I'm talking to you, because you're a white male, <laughs> um, therefore, instead I would say like, Bob, tell me about, you know, what was that like for you growing up? Yeah. Um, and I would learn your story, learn your context and let that inform where we start in therapy. You said to me that, um, you know, everything some everything a client brings into the room is just for the mill and so mm -hmm. that like uh, however i see myself or my experiences you you're interested in that you want to mm -hmm. know like mm -hmm. how do you identify yourself mm -hmm. in the world but what you mentioned was that the the critical social justice component i thought you said this really helpfully starts to add value components 
two aspects of our identity. Yes. How do, how do you see that working? What is it? I think that's right. an interesting way of explaining what's wrong with this way of thinking is that it's taking something about my identity, my whiteness or my maleness mm-hmm. and making it assigning value to it in a way that I don't have any control over mm-hmm. whether it's valuable to you or not valuable to you. Right. Yeah. So it's saying, uh, I have the, there's this something if, if, People want to look it up. It's called a wheel of power. You can Google wheel of power and privilege. Um, and it just is a graphic that can really communicate what intersectionality is. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. Uh, it does in the center of the wheel, you've got things like um, your skin color, your level of education, your ability, um, your sexuality, your your gender, if you're a citizen or not, what what kind of wealth you have. Um, so I, I say that if you have those, if you are um, a cisgender, heterosexual, white man, then you are in the center of power. Um, you have extended education, you know, therefore I've said you are in a good position. I've ascribed good things to you in the sense of, um, of that, again, that power and privilege. From this ideology, I would, however, be saying, okay, you're coming in and all these things are working against you and we need to deconstruct all of them. We need to pull apart why you feel value in your maleness or your whiteness or um, your education or or any of those parts. And um, from this, again, from this ideology, I would be helping you pull those apart, deconstructing them, assigning kind of a negative um, value to them. Uh, with somebody from the margins, I would be pulling them in and describing a good value to them. Like it's okay uh, where you are um, with your gender transition. It's okay if you're a not you know an undocumented citizen or you have darker skin color. And in truth, as believers, we we would say that there is there isn't one kind of person that is better than another kind of person. Um, from Christian the Christian perspective, we believe in Imago Dei, that we're all made in the image of God. We all have dignity and we all have value. We all have worth. And um, it, is, it is equal. There is no human being other than Christ himself that had more value or worth. And so um, as a Christian counselor, rather than ascribing that some of these identities are good, some of these identities are bad, I would be saying that I'm going to look at you as a person of God. I'm going to see you um, with the value and worth that he intrinsically made in you. And my goal would be to help you see that in yourself. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind saying, what what did it feel like, Audrey, to have to go through two years of a, of a program and then have someone say, basically, because of the identity categories that you are a part of, we just can't work together? Honestly, in the, in the conversation, I brought up um, more extended part of my story is that as a person of faith, I have experienced um, bullying or even being called out in a high school class by a history teacher. You don't really believe in the stories of the Bible that they're really true. You don't really believe Jonah really got swallowed by a whale, do you? And um, just that facing that like challenge of, of faith in front of other people from a very young age, um, I have never felt like oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Therefore I've got power in my culture. I felt like, oh, I'm a Christian. Do other people like really believe in Christ like I do? Or am I like the only one? And so that being my experience to be in this conversation with a professor, which 
this person, because she's a professor, has power in that relationship. Um, and yet she is telling me these things about this identity and this is describing me. And I said, like, would you like to know my experience? Would you like to know my story? And she did not. And it was, it's very, um, I mean, painful is one way to say it, but, um, it's stifling. It is, um, eliminates your voice, um, being categorized and stereotyped to say that I have inherent, I would, uh, my clients would be intimidated by me because of the power of the institutions that I represent, um, was challenging because I felt like I hope I'm a non-anxious presence in the room with my clients. And, um, one of them, that meant I didn't have power to be a good therapist who could sit with my client, whether they're a person of color or an LGBTQ plus or any other person. Um, yeah, that felt disempowering, but that that's just a small word to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say to people um, who are wanting to pursue this kind of work? You know, so someone who's coming behind you, like you said, a younger student or someone who's saying, man, I want to give my life to being a counselor. I might want to go to graduate school to be a therapist. Uh, as a Christian, speaking to Christians, what, what do they need to know about, about the, the trends here? And what does it mean for sort of the future of the um, the profession and for those who, especially with a, with a self-conscious Christian identity are wanting to move in this direction. Absolutely. There's, there are a lot of options out there and, uh, take time and do some research to become a licensed mental health practitioner in the state of Nebraska. Um, you have to have an accredited program. Um, you can have a non-accredited program and then present your coursework to the state to see if it could be, um, accepted. But going through an accredited program, uh, just be wary. Uh, the accredited, accrediting program for marriage and family therapists put out guidelines for how to treat an LG, the LGBTQ plus population that came as I was halfway through my program. So even that information was not there when I started and when I was doing that initial research. So just be aware that when you are seeking if you're seeking to become a licensed mental health practitioner, whether that's through the social work uh, degree or a um, licensed counselor degree or a marriage and family therapist or a clinical psychologist, uh, look at those accrediting agencies. What are their codes of ethics? Have they put out recent statements about um, diversity and inclusion? Can you agree with those things? And then be flexible, recognize that those situations can change. We are in a very shifting society right now, a culture right now. So um, be flexible and able to shift if needed. Uh, there are other options out there for being prepared to help people. If you do not feel like you absolutely want to be licensed, um, there are biblical counseling certification programs. There is uh, life coaching. Um, there's spiritual direction. If you want to do something with, it, with more of an explicitly Christian focus, uh, that's an option. Um, also looking at schools that are Christian schools that can offer, that do offer accredited programs and uh, asking them how they're handling some of this. 
emphasis. Some of the emphasis is coming from, again, those accrediting agencies, but some of it is even coming from the states themselves. Nebraska is just now requiring that the education component component include a social and cultural diversity aspect um, that includes counselors be aware of their role in social justice and the nature of biases and prejudices and of the processes of intentional and unintentional oppression and discrimination. And that is from um, the statutes for Nebraska's rules in uh, becoming a licensed therapist. Well, and one of the things I think we need to be aware of is the way that language is being changed here, because as I hear you say those words like social justice, okay, well, I, the Bible talks about social justice, being aware of bias. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, there's ways Christians can hear these things and kind of naively assume, okay, well, I think I'm on board with all that stuff. But when you read the statements of mm-hmm. what do these groups mean when they say that, you, you start to find things like, mm, I don't know if I could be okay with that, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, for instance, the, the APA, uh, right, that part of their new statement is um, that the we want to embed these principles throughout all aspects of our work to be committed to honoring the voices and perspective of marginalized social and intersectional identities. So mm-hmm. when that language of intersectionality starts to mm-hmm. make it into official statements, there's a certain framework behind that. Mm-hmm. They mean something specific mm-hmm. by the language of social justice. Mm-hmm. And it's not what the Bible means by social justice. Mm-hmm. It's a, it, it's an, a, a flipping of the power. Mm-hmm. Grid. It's a little more of a, as you said, sort of a, a postmodern or Marxist understanding of power dynamics. And that, Understanding that that's what's implicit in the language, I think, is really crucial for wise and discerning evaluation of mm-hmm. various programs. Absolutely. And I would, I would also add that if a student is interested in going into um, a counseling profession or a therapist profession or social work, uh, to have a strong support network, to have um, be grounded in your faith. Even if you think you're grounded in your faith, you're going to be tested beyond what you can imagine. And so have a pastor or a, a friend um, who is a strong theologian who you can come and ask those questions to and be able to really work out your conscience before the Lord, what you believe and how you can act in a way that honors the Lord in, in the confines of your, the profession that you're seeking to go into. Um, being able to enunciate your faith uh, and know what you believe will help you be able to navigate these waters more um, with greater agility and flexibility. Um, when we're when we're rigid and we come up against opposition, we're more likely to crumble and fall. And so, um, one of the I, for me, one of the signs of when I'm most healthy, I'm able to be flexible. Uh, so it, this my program challenged me in so many ways to be able to think before the Lord. Um, really solidifying the concept of Imago Dei and how I can really see everyone in a, made in his image, um, how I can step in and what does love look like even to those who come from a very different background than I do? Um, how can I, even, what does common grace look like and how can I give therapy or um, step into that role even in areas where I don't agree, but I can, I can present interventions that, that are common grace for everyone. Everyone should be able to learn how to communicate well. Yeah. Everyone should be able to have relationships, know how to navigate navigate relational dynamics well. There are things that that it's okay regardless of the population. Not just it's okay, it's good 
for them, for us all to learn. And, and in learning that, we, um, we can actually share what it's like to have a healthy relationship with our Heavenly Father. Yeah. I want to read, I want to go backwards in this free press article and read one of the stories that they tell, because I think I'm, I'm going to hypothesize here that I think this is, I think biblical counseling offered by churches and Christians is going to become more and more important and necessary. And there's a story here that illustrates why, and it has nothing to do with Christian people. So the article starts with this 26 year old white lesbian who's going to therapy and she, her therapist is a, a black woman. And what happens is as she encounters therapy, she starts to um, identify less and less with the identity categories that had formed her activism. She starts to do more individual work and starts to care a little bit less about sort of all the power categories. And so she starts to talk about this with her therapist. And the therapist um, says that the client is making her feel unsafe. And the counselor basically fires the client and says, like, I can't see you anymore because you're making me feel unsafe. And it's all rooted in these identity categories, right? Because as a black female therapist, this white woman who was no longer willing to identify herself as a, you know, as shaped by white supremacy and was starting to say, like, no, I think this is just stuff in my story that I needed to work on, offended this therapist. And to me... A lot of the people there, I mean, again, some of this article is anecdotal. It's people with stories like yours, Audrey, that this reporter is talking to. But I think a lot of what these people are saying is actually it's not very helpful mm -hmm. to have a therapist who just sees me through identity categories. Mm -hmm. I want someone who sees me as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think if the more and more that the discipline heads in this direction, I think the more and more biblical counseling is going to feel to people like actually the only place I might be able to get help as an individual mm -hmm. Because if I go to the uh, a therapist down the street who is only going to see me in light of intersectional categories, there's a limit to the help I can get there. And so I, as I read this article, it just made me long for the church to be even more committed to biblical counseling rooted in the Imago Dei and rooted in common grace and just the reality that like, man, I think we can really help human beings thrive. Ultimately, do we want to see them meet Jesus? Yes. But even just as a grace to the cities that we live in and the people that we're around in a neighborhood, being able to say, hey, we can, we want to help human beings thrive. And we're here for that. Um, seems like a, a pretty amazing opportunity for the church. Absolutely. I think too, as you're saying that, I'm thinking um, the presence that we have to offer as especially as believers sitting across from another person, we have the opportunity to be Christ incarnate to that person, whether they're a, whoever they are. And so they can have a taste of what it is to have a relationship with someone who loves them for who they are, who sees past their identities and sees the person inside of them, sees the core and the essence of them, sees their longing to be loved, to be seen, to be known in their experience, in their context. Um, and because Christ has done that for us, because we have been seen and known, because he has become incarnate and walked in our shoes, we have the grace and ability in him to do that for other people. So I do think that um, I would hate to see believers shun away from being in the helping professions and being those who, who want to sit across from a hurting, a hurting human and be there to help them. You uh, had some stuff written on a piece of paper, and I just wanted to give you a chance to say, hey, Audrey, what else would you want to say to listeners 
as we think about this whole world of therapy and some of the shifts that are happening in sort of critical social justice beginning to sort of uh, define the discipline a little bit, um, as we just sort of evaluate that as Christians and from your experiences in coming to the end of a program and sort of having to part ways, uh, what would you what would you want people to listeners to walk away from this podcast sort of having some categories to think through? Mm-hmm. I'm thinking. Uh, in one sense, if you are already in the field, you may be experiencing some of these pressures yourself. Uh, you might be from perhaps those accrediting agencies where you're getting some of your material. Um, many require a you know membership that you belong to, and so you might be getting that material, seeing those those. Um, continuing education units that are offered or leaning in this direction. And so you might be starting to feel that pressure, even though that was not in the education that you had. Um, So I would just encourage you, if you're already in the field, to lean on your support system. If you don't already have one, I would encourage you to continue to develop one, uh, be able to talk about it to other people, uh, ask for prayer, ask for help to be discerning, Um, we are called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And so, um, we need the, the wisdom of the Holy spirit to guide us in this. Um, but I also encourage you to let your needs be known to your community, communicate like this is really hard and, uh, we're not, we can't do it alone. Um, for those who are seeking therapy, I would encourage, um, that it, It is very hard when you are finally taking that first step to find someone that might help you. And if you're hearing a podcast like this, you might think, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) this is all of a sudden a lot harder. Um, I just want to encourage that it is really normal to seek out more than one one counselor or one therapist. Uh, The first one doesn't have to be the one that fits for you it is okay to interview the person that you're seeking help from. Um, Even though it has taken so much courage and so much energy to reach out even that first time, um, it, and it feels like that, that might even be overwhelming to think, well, now I have to interview them or now they might come at me with this social justice stuff. (laughs) Um, That it's a, it's okay that if you, if you don't get it the first session and you go another session and you just have, it's not a good fit. It's okay. Even after three or four sessions, it's still okay to realize maybe this person's not the right fit for me. Um, and sometimes it can take two or three um, counselors or therapists to find the right person that's going to be able to meet you and see you see you as a person and be able to to meet you in, in your place. Um, and just for our wider culture, I just encourage us to continue that conversation of what is health. This ideology is saying that... Um, Health is defined by our identities, um, but how do we want to define health? How does how does God define health um, for us? And as we pursue emotional and mental, and as well as physical and spiritual health, um, that's a cultural conversation we can continue to have. Audrey, thanks for being willing to come on a podcast and talk about a very difficult. Moment in your professional and personal journey, and also to help us think about um, even the importance of living with biblical integrity in the midst of a journey like that. Because that's what I what I appreciate about you is I sort of watched you 
wrestle through every step along that journey and ask, what does it mean for me to live as a convictional Christian in this space with these people uh, going through this program? Um, what trade-offs can I make? What trade-offs can't I make? Where are there lines I need to draw? And um, so I, I thank you for modeling that for us. Um, and thanks for serving a lot of the people in our church with your counseling and care. I'm, I'm blessed to have you on our team. Well, thank you. Um, listeners, I'm going to post the article from the free press. Uh, obviously, we haven't really dealt with the article much at all, but I think as you read it, it might help you understand some of the dynamics that are going on here. And um, and I think this is one of those places where we just need to be aware because um, either, one of two things is going to happen. Either the whole discipline is going to go in this direction and it's going to get very wonky or there will be a correction over time as people start to go, oh, this isn't actually helpful to anyone. And uh, either way, as Christians, we're going to have to know our place and continue to walk with integrity in the world that we live in with discernment about what's going on around us. And this is one of those places where I think it helps us to be discerning, especially as we're seeking counseling, those of us thinking about going into counseling, and as we interact with the world um, that has to do with um, therapy and the people helping professions. So uh, I hope this has been helpful to you. And um, thanks for listening. As always, if you have feedback, thoughts, questions, future podcast topics, I want to encourage you to send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Um, if you have, if you want to have Audrey come back on and answer all your questions, we can do another episode and uh, tackle whatever you want to talk about. Um, so we encourage you to reach out with whatever uh, topics or questions you might want to throw at us and we'll do our best to tackle them. Uh, we, as, as always, we thank you for listening and I look forward to seeing you again next week for another Wednesday conversation.